Smile Films, the film review podcast that mixes cinema with fine spirits. Journey with us as we encounter new, old, and even strange films with the occasional dabble into sports and music. Proceed with caution, as these podcasts will feature spoilers and some mature language. This is Matt. And this is Jesse. Today on Tap, we have Carrie, starring Sissy Spacek, Piper Laurie, Nancy Allen, Amy Irving, John Travolta, William Catt, and Betty Buckley? <laughs> Betty Buckley again, how surprising. Uh, directed by Brian De Palma. Welcome back to Rye Smile Films, uh, the film review podcast that highlights new and old films with fine spirits. And Matt, we got quite a little sleigh of spirits here uh, for today's episode, actually. Yes, we and, do. Uh, today we're going to be opening up the next cask in our film review series. And we're calling this one uh, King's Landing. And I'm just going to go ahead and say it. We're going to call this King's Landing Part 1 because this is this is something we could mine and mine for, for a very long time. Yes, for but, sure. But um, it seemed very apt to do this because on April 5th we got a new version of Pet Cemetery coming out. So we wanted to focus on some of King's uh, horror films. And what better than start with the one that started all, both book and film. So before we do that, though, we have a few little housekeeping items want to shout out to all the fans and listeners for pushing us over 1,300 downloads um, in just t- t- two months. Yeah. Um, Thank you all. That's really awesome. We're very humbled by the reception, and uh, we can't make to m- make more episodes for you. We didn't kind of know what to expect uh, listenership-wise when we started this, but... Um, I think we're very pleased and um, very surprised at the same time. So thank you. Someday we'll get into the story of how this whole opus got started. It's kind of remarkable, actually. Um, maybe not today, but we'll get into that. The truth is, Jesse and I love doing this. Mm-hmm. And you providing <clears throat> some ears for us to do it to is fueling this to get better. And as much as we love doing this, mm-hmm. uh, the fact that you all seem to like it uh, is, is is a good sign And I got to be honest, I think we've talked about the next two or three casts. We've got some really cool stuff Mm -hmm. coming up after this one. Yeah, the summer's going to be a lot of fun, actually. Sure will be. So again, Jesse just said it, but I'll echo the same thing. Thank Mm -hmm. you all very much. Mm -hmm. And uh, a few different shout-outs to some individual viewers. A shout-out to Nate the Great Nerd in response to our Batman Noir question that we asked during the uh, Double Indemnity episode. Um, We had asked uh, what villain would best fit a noir setting for the next Batman film. Nate actually had a pretty interesting suggestion of Talia al Ghul. Now, a version of Talia was used in The Dark Knight Rises, but I have kind of forgotten a little bit that, you know, she actually had more of an emotional pull on Batman. They actually had a son together. Um, That's right. So he actually said that, like, that more uh, direct connection versus Catwoman being, you know, more the femme fatale might have more of, like, a, sed- a seductional pull on bruce wayne so damian wayne right is that exactly yeah that's a good take yeah Yeah, i I thought that was a good uh a different female that you know doesn't get talked about a lot but that could be that could be something certainly with the element of the fathering of the child that does tend to start check some boxes on the noir stuff so i think that's a really good idea well Mm -hmm. done nate Mm -hmm. and then uh shout out to firewater 1983 in response to uh last week's episode robocop we asked what was the best character uh musical theme and um uh, he went with uh, the Avengers theme by Alan Silvestri, which, you know, I couldn't agree more. And I think it's used very intricately well in that first film to introduce the assembling of this team. But honestly, I thought it was used the best in Infinity War when Thor showed up in Wakanda with Rocket and Groot 
and it just kind of just levels the playing field. Like I thought that was such a heroic, like triumphant moment that mm-hmm. is just further echoed by that brilliant theme. So yeah, thanks again on that. And we really do appreciate the feedback. We're definitely on uh, Instagram. Uh, it's find it under Rice Smile. And then uh, there's email too. If you have questions or comments or ideas, by mm-hmm. all means, Jesse, the email on yep. that. Pricesmileproductions at gmail.com. Uh, let us know your responses. We'll read them in the episode. And um, yeah, let's kind of get into it. I'm really excited to be venturing into Stephen King territory, Matt, because as much as we've talked about horror in the, the questions, they're filtered throughout the episodes. We haven't done like a true like horror film yet. You know, Alien might be the closest thing. And then next after that would probably be Serenity. Am I right? <laughs> yeah, 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 right. Okay. Different kind of horror, but equally as horrific. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so... Um, <laughs> Serenity is bad. I think there's a lot of cool questions we can ask now that we're talking about Stephen King. You know, best adaptation, worst adaptation, scariest scenes, best scenes... Uh, best performances in a King movie. The first one I want to start with, with The Flight. And we're actually going to be doing a flight of, of whiskey with, with each each one of these questions here. So, Matt, the flight for this week is top three favorite scenes in Stephen King adaptations. So not the books, the films. So go ahead and let's grab one of these. Um, let me know what you think. This one's actually a little bit, a little bit darker here, darker rye. Okay, Matt. So number three, what's your third favorite uh, King and King adaptation? Okay, so my third favorite film adaptation is from The Mist, and it's actually the sequence in the storage facility with the plant-like tentacle that mm. kind of reaches underneath the door, mm. the garage door, and grabs um, the stock boy. Yeah, right. the stock boy, right? The kid from American Pie. That's only mm. know that kid, right? <laughs> there you go. Yeah, kind of rips his his chest up and um the reason i like that scene so much is for me it works because it plays on a really important part of horror and that's sometimes not even sometimes most of the time what you don't see Mm -hmm. is more terrifying than what you see definitely and that scene is that in spades just a tentacle that's big yeah and there seems to be more than one because several sort of pour in through the opening underneath the garage door they're trying very poorly to fight these things off. And then that last look before the kid is drug out the door is just priceless. And I think that's the first time we see the monster in the film too, right? A monster. Yeah, a monster, yeah. Thomas Jane desperately trying <clears throat> to hold on to the kid. And he gives no one less look like, please don't let me go. And off he goes. So that's number three for me. So then I'll let you take a crack at your third. Excellent. So I'm going with uh, Pet Cemetery mm-hmm. and the Achilles tendon mm-hmm. scene. Mm-hmm. So I actually uh, just finished reading Pet Cemetery a couple months ago, and I was really surprised that this bit's actually not in the book. Um, so this is actually an invention for the film. But talk about effective. Little boy under there slices mm-hmm. Herman Munster's Achilles tendon. That's just such a vulnerable part on the body. And the way he does it with the scalpel, just you just cringe and just you can't you almost can't look at it. I think that's a very effective kill scene. But one that sticks with you, I think everyone, if they don't take anything away from Pet Cemetery, I think they remember the Achilles tendon scene. For sure. Because you can feel the pain. Mm-hmm. And the way that uh, it affects was Herman Munster. Mm-hmm. And the way he goes down. And by the way, it's a really good performance by him in that. Yeah, Fred uh, Gwynn. Fred Gwynn. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I agree. That's a really good scene. Yeah, I'm curious to see in this new one if 
they include that just because they know the effectiveness of it. Mm-hmm. So we'll see. All right, time to cleanse palate. <clears throat> okay. Mm-hmm. All right, number two here. I think that this is the Jefferson's Reserve. Okay. Yep. Oh. Also good. And when they're lined up here, you can actually tell the color differences. Mm, yep. This one's a little more um, on the yellow, yellowish brown side. And this one's more of a, like a pure brown. So it's interesting that Clyde May burned a little bit more. Mm-hmm. This is a little bit smoother. Yeah. Uh, but the back end of this, I think, is a little bit spicier than the Clyde May. There you go. Yep. That Jefferson Reserve was good stuff. It is good stuff. I that's we that, killed that bottle. That, that's the end of it right that's there. That's the end of it. Yep. Okay. All right, Matt. Number two. Oh, this is so hard. Um, okay, so... Jesse and I purposely said before that this began that we were going to leave the Shawshank off limits, right? So that being said, this would be in strong contention here, but we're going to leave that out because that's just picking such low-hanging fruit. (laughs) And what scenes specifically from that film, Mm -hmm. right? This could be, for me, Mm -hmm. the whole flight could be from that. So I'm going to change direction on you a little bit here. Sure. And I'm going to go with one thing that I mentioned a couple weeks ago. Okay. Maybe last week. Which is in Salem's Lot, which is a pretty forgettable B-list film, mm-hmm. except for that scene that I already mentioned, which is the Glick, I believe it's Danny Glick at Ralphie Glick's window, mm-hmm. playing on the very common trope in vampire mythology, which is what you have to be invited in mm-hmm. in order to vamp the unwitting, or I guess witting, the invite him in victim. Yep. That strumming yeah. of his nails on the glass for the window is still really terrifying to me. Now, I'm sure the aesthetic is probably... Not as effective at the age in my life now as I was when I saw it when I was eight. But I will never forget that scene. Yeah. And it's delivered really, really well in a movie that's mostly not delivered well. Mm-hmm. Um, the effect of the smoke and just the whisper and that the, the glassy sort of vacuous uh, look in the kid's eyes and his pale skin... My introduction into what vampire vampires were, and I'll never forget it. So that's my number two. It's really good. Really, you're right. Accented by that like fog oh. mist, like that's just like surrounding him. Yeah, that that's good stuff there. Ralphie, pretty Ralphie. good for it. Like yeah, TV movie too. Yeah, yeah. All right, my number two is. This is a film we have to do this at some point because it's I think so controversial in the lore of King fans and then film fans. I'm, I'm kind of caught between both worlds, actually. Um, and it's The Shining, uh, just because of, you know, the take of the adaptation. So the scene I am picking from The Shining is all work and no play make Jack a dull boy. So when Shelley Duvall comes up to his typewriter and sees that for the last three or four months, he's been typing nonsense. And not just like two pages. He has like 100 pages of this of this phrase here. But this really kind of gets into the differences of... The book and the novel, and you, you said it earlier to me, Matt, are we judging the book or are we judging the film? Being that this is a film review podcast, I think we're going to look at it from a film perspective and then kind of look at how the book like did things differently, so to speak. Not saying one's better than the other, but um, kind of looking at it from that angle. Um, a critic said that the difference between the two Jack Torrances was that in the book, it's a normal man who becomes insane. The hotel drives him insane, the ghosts in this hotel drive him crazy. Jack Nicholson portrays a crazy man attempting to remain sane. I kind of like both. You know what I mean? Like, it's the cabin fever that starts this whole thing for Jack. And 
him writing this and Shelley Duvall uh, finding it and he says, do you like what you see? And then they kind of chase each other like through this. And I think they did that scene like 120 times, 120 takes. Holy smokes. Yeah, Kubrick was known perfectionist, but I think it's just a really effective shock. But I think that's the, the clicking point for, for her, for Wendy. Yes. That Jack has just, I got to do something with this guy. Waxworth had the baseball bat. Um, I really like that scene. That is a great scene. That's us saying that's one of the better performances in Nicholson's career is yeah. obvious. Yeah. But it truly is. And I think that scene in particular is what staples Jack Nicholson, that that era of Nicholson, yeah. as a very capable villain. Oh, yeah. Because if you go back to the earlier stuff, whether it be Easy Rider or One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest or what have you, mm-hmm. he's, he's almost boy next door charming. Yeah. And then we get into this, which, of course, is going to launch some very different iterations. And, I mean, we could go with... Witches of Eastwick, whatever you can say about mm-hmm. that movie. Or The Joker, you can say whatever you want to say about that movie. Yeah. But a dawn of a different Nicholson, which is, boy, given the right material, yeah. can sure come through in a yeah. much more devious way than we had seen. Yeah, he can have some fun with it. Because he's certainly not that mm-hmm. an easy writer. Mm-mm. Right. Yeah. Sweet. Okay. Palette cleanse. Cleanse it. All right, last one here. Now, this is the this is the mystery one. I don't know what this is. <laughs> is that basil? I don't know if that's basil. I'm, I want to say it's like a, it's a scotch whiskey. Oh, no. But what kind? I have no idea. Hmm. That's got a nice smooth taste to it, too. I think it is scotch because you get that little bit of hint of peat in there. Mm. Right? Yeah, that one's pretty good too, actually. Okay, so of the three, which one's your winner? One, two, or three? I don't know. I think it might be this mystery one, actually. It's pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to go with two, but yeah. barely. Yeah. That's a nice little flight there. Some pretty good stuff. Cool, cool. All right, Matt, number one. Oh, as I'm about to talk, I still am not 100% on this, but since it's not going to go on my tombstone as I leave the earth, I guess we'll go with it today. Okay, ready? Mm-hmm. It's actually... The opening scene in our film today. Oh, okay. <clears throat> I will argue that it might be, and I mean a strong might. Might's mm-hmm. a cheap way out, but yeah. a strong might. The most memorable sequence next to maybe Halloween mm-hmm. in a horror film of all time. Mm-hmm. Okay, the POV behind the mask for young Michael Myers yeah, yeah. in the first Halloween is remarkable. Mm-hmm. This, though, to have the onset of... Carrie White's period as we open when she's in a rather euphoric state in the shower Mm -hmm. is so troubling. Now, that's something that I'm never going to experience, but it's delivered in a way that I think is at its at its crux, Mm -hmm. the best of King and De Palma working together. Mm -hmm. And then we lay the groundwork for the rest of the film in that scene. Oh yeah, that's with the kids taunting Carrie and that they're all going to laugh at you and because mm-hmm. they're all laughing at her. Yep. And what do you do? And here's the other question mm-hmm. that the book explains. Again, the movie is not the book, but the book does a better job of explaining it. Mm-hmm. How does Carrie have a fully sim, you know, developed female form mm-hmm. without the onset of her period mm-hmm. yet? Mm-hmm. And it, the book does a better job of explaining it, yep. but. What's great about that is it sets up some language in the film that I think remains germane to the film. And that is with the onset of the blood comes the onset of the TK or the telekinesis. Mm-hmm. 
And that's also going to be how we exit the film if you think about it as well. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So as the the amount, the flow gets greater, heavier, that sounds awful. Mm-hmm. And I'm sorry if I'm being offensive to anybody. Yeah. But as the amount of blood increases, so does the TK. Mm-hmm. And he lays that out in the first three minutes of the film. Yeah. Very dreamlike. Very... I mean, they freaking throw... Um, Kotex and, and tampons yeah, at her, dude. Yeah, plug it up, plug it up. What the hell? Yeah, that it's it's and you're right. It does set the film on its path. That's great. Brutally, I, I think like, we got, we'll talk about it a little bit more here okay. coming up. All right. <laughs> Coincidentally, my number one, um, also from Carrie, the last, uh, or I'll, I'll say just the entire prom sequence. Um, and I don't want to talk about it in detail because we're going to talk about that a little later. I think this is a very masterfully directed staged uh choreographed yeah. sequence whether by camera actors yep. and just like editing dizzying right as a way to describe that oh yeah on purpose brilliant yep. and i want to talk about it further but i think yep. that's that's my favorite scene in all of stephen king's adaptations all of them all that's of it them. that's the one like with a bullet like with no question with no question wow really yeah. okay now, i'll explain a little bit more that's about good. that coming up but excellent great choices let us know your choices Facebook, Instagram, the email. We'd love to hear what you got what you have to say. But let's get right to it. Let's get to our breakdown of Carrie. sorry cassie the film starts out with a volleyball scene and right from the get-go we kind of know that carrie white's an outsider she's on the outlayers of this volleyball team uh can't even make the 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 save to to win the game for the team and then the girls just let her have it eat shit carrie kind of a kind of thing and that's just a metaphor for the entire rest of the film directly into matt's uh number one number one scene in the flight this shower sequence now, I just want to say one thing real quick about Brian De Palma and the opening of his movies. I don't know if this was like a theme of his early on in his career, but in this film, Dress to Kill, Blowout, I think even Sisters too, and I can't remember how that film starts out. He starts out with gr- gratuitous amounts of nudity. Yep. You know what I mean? Yep. It's just like that. he just starts the film and in these dreamy, hazy ways. I always found that very interesting about um about about how he how he starts a film really kind of uh interesting way to to kind of get it going. Yep. But it's um accented by this dreamlike score by Pino Donaggio and also the cinematography of this film not just in this scene but in the rest of the film. Did you notice it's kind of almost like hazy on the oh, edges? Yeah. Oh yeah. And it plays well in the shower because it's sort of steamy to begin mm-hmm. with. So I think that's also brilliantly done is it sort of disguises it in a natural environment. Yeah. But as you're sort of trying to like <clears throat> rub the fog off the window when you get out of the shower. Exactly. That's almost the effect you get in this film. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah. go ahead. One of the things that I think we'd be remiss to not mention about De Palma mm-hmm. is his reverence for former films that influenced him. So we can go from sequences in like the the train sequence on the stairs in the untouchables to battleship Potemkin mm-hmm. to dress to kill which essentially is psycho mm-hmm. right to 
Blowout, which is a remake of the Blow, French film Blow Up, Blow Up mm-hmm. to this moment later in the film with the exact score from Psycho. Mm-hmm. Like he does a really, and you could almost even say Scarface is really a, an 80s version of The Godfather, mm-hmm. right? Am yep. I not right? Yep. With the same guy, Al Pacino, essentially. Mm-hmm. So Brian De Palma definitely plays homage to films that were predecessors to his current model. And this movie starts off, I think, in a very similar way with a kind of hazy entrance into um, a female-driven scene that shows another highlight of what I argue is one of De Palma's greatest strengths. It's going to sound weird, but it's his use of blood. Brian De Palma is not ever short when it comes to Mm -hmm. the use of violence and gore. Um, And if you ever doubt this, like, if you have 20 minutes, go back to the sequence that I just spoke about in The Untouchables, mm-hmm. right? When Elliot Ness, Kevin Costner, blows the villain, the one of Capone's henchmen, mm-hmm. through the glass behind him. Brian De Palma takes such great care in that scene that as the guy blows through the glass behind him, mm-hmm. the leg of his that hits the glass shards... There's blood on the glass. Mm -hmm. And to go to that level, to shoot that that way, like he's a master when it comes to Mm -hmm. what blood looks like on screen. Mm -hmm. And it's not just for the shock value of what blood is to Mm -hmm. me in De Palma. De Palma uses blood as the essence of soul and what that represents. Mm -hmm. Also in that scene, for example, I know we're not talking about the untouchables, Mm -hmm. but since we're here, when when De Niro, Al Capone, bashes that guy's head open with the bat Mm -hmm. and he spills on the table and it pulls in that specific way right and then like the round table that's like a semblance of like camelot and king arthur and the knights of the round table Mm -hmm. are all sort of flooded by his blood Uh, it speaks volumes about what the binding tie between all of those members and the chicago syndicate were Mm -hmm. so that scene right yeah these these wicked High school girls. I call them the mean girls. Okay. The original mean girls. Sure. Yeah. (laughs) More than mean, but that's a compliment to what they are to him. (laughs) Yeah. This this poor girl Mm -hmm. has the onset of what's the essence Mm -hmm. of female reproduction, which is a very common theme in this film. Mm -hmm. And they, here's another common theme in this film. Yep. They crucify her for it. Yep. Yeah. Like you said, they pull out the... The, the 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 tampax and the and the and the, the tampon they just they just let her have it well essentially stone her in the shower mm-hmm. which is in the book a very common theme like the stoning of her own house yep but also ties into another theme in this film which would be use of religion mm-hmm. and the stoning of those that are not pure mm-hmm. here's the crazy thing about it though the teacher right Miss, Betty Buckley Miss Collins yep shows up and is the most abusive teacher yeah. Ever to be employed in the public domain. Yeah. Whacking kids, smacking them. Yeah. And like grabbing Carrie and shaking her like, what the hell's the matter with you? Mm-hmm. Okay, so that scene is also really important because mm-hmm. we get the apex mm-hmm. of Sue Snell and what's going to drive her in this film. Yep. She joins in, doesn't she? Joins in and then a kind of almost like instant regret afterwards. Backs off regretting yep. fully. Mm-hmm. Like regretting that she threw mm-hmm. the tampons and yelled, plug it up. Because this poor girl is just besieged Mm -hmm. by the slings and arrows of her peers. Mm -hmm. And here's the thing that the movie doesn't quite show you, but we get again. Yeah. I think, I think King in the book, and I just went back and reread the book this week, Mm -hmm. (coughs) describes Carrie as 
a toad among swans and like the opening discussion about what Carrie White looks like. That's a great description. Now, Sissy Spacek's much better than that in the film because mm-hmm. I don't think Sissy Spacek at this point in her life is remotely ugly at all. Mm-hmm. But we get the idea, man, this is an outcast. Mm-hmm. And to take that moment, Jesse, where she's under <clears throat> the heat yep. and the water of that nozzle, which is so clearly phallic and depicted as such by De Palma in the shop mm-hmm. prior to that, pouring this water on her, which is obviously yep. Carrie trying to figure out sexually where she fits in and what that means to her and kind of exploring that a little bit. Mm-hmm. And then to bring on her period yeah. is just such a stark yeah hard moment Mm -hmm. this is the first three minutes of the movie yeah exactly and then real quick to kind of accent that we get the first emergence of this telekinesis she blows one of the lights Lights in there right um and i like the ambiguity of the film you know in the book it's clearly you know she's had this at a young age she stoned the house when she was a child yeah um i kind of like the idea that this is the first time it's happened and it starts at the emergence of this menstrual cycle, right? The beginning of womanhood, the mm-hmm. beginning, the emergence of this telekinesis. I think that's a great parallel there that the book that the movie alludes to that the you know the, the the book kind of went in a different direction, so to speak. I really like the line in the following scene with with the principal and Miss Collins, and she's like, you know what? Like I, I kind of know what they were doing, and that for a moment, like I kind of wanted to join them, kind of a thing. So. We get this principal who can't even say her name right. He's calling her Cassie, and and this and that, and then she the telekinesis comes up again. She flips the flips the ashtray, right? And then for my name's not Cassie. Yes, yes. So yeah, this perfect juxtaposition, and within the first five minutes, the whole rest of the film is on its path, and oh boy, what a path it's gonna take. From here, we get the introduction of Margaret White, played by Piper Laurie. And this is a really interesting uh, performance. I would say a really, really great performance. Yeah, I would echo that. And um, as we've talked about Piper Laurie in the past before, she had done The Hustler, which, you know, that's on your Mount Rushmore. You love that movie. Top three of all time. Yeah. She didn't act for like another 15 years until this movie, like in a feature film. In a feature film. Right. She took this hiatus. And so you go from that to this and... The thing that really sticks out to me with her, and every time I watch it, is that hair. Yep. It's like someone that had been electrocuted, and it's obviously someone who's not vain with beauty mm-hmm. and hair product. Mm-hmm. She wakes up, and this is this is how she dresses. This is how she is. And, you know, we see her trying to, like, go praise the word of the Lord to the Snell family. She doesn't want to carry anywhere around her. Yeah, she shows up at Sue Snell's mother's mm-hmm. house and begins her missionary work mm-hmm. to basically be dismissed by the Snells. And you can see Snoo Snell's mom is like, oh my God, here's this lady again. Mm-hmm. Which is kind of interesting because it's Carrie grown up, is it not? Exactly. The mm-hmm. way Carrie's dismissed <clears throat> among her peers and forgotten at best and mostly dismissed or, or roundly bullied, Sue Snell does the same thing to Margaret White, and you know Jesse, honestly, who can blame her? Yeah, she's she's a psycho. She's From, with the word one. She's a psycho. Yeah, we talk about psycho here in a second. She rattles off multiple Bible passages throughout. Yep. Throughout the film, and whether it's a continuity error or not, they don't they don't correlate. 
She talks about like Genesis chapter this or that, whatever. And what she's saying is like something totally out. So if that was intentional, it totally proves that she's like batshit insane. Yeah. Right. But I think we get that. I mean, you know, Carrie comes home and Carrie's like, Mama, why didn't you tell me? That, you know, the, <coughs> they all laughed at me. And why didn't you tell me, Mama? And she's immediately pulling out the thing. And like, you're a woman now. And the first sin was intercourse. And the raven. And like, and Eve was weak. And say it, child. Eve was Eve weak. Eve released the raven on society. Exactly. And she's so honed in on this Christian religious path. And we learn why later at the end of the film kind of kind of yeah um but this is a very odd mother-daughter relationship to the point where you know carrie has to go into into the closet to go go pray and then this is this something else there you know i always kind of thought that statue that was there was that was pierced the thing was like a like a crucifix of jesus christ but it's actually not that's actually saint sebastian which saint sebastian was um Kind of like a prophet, mm-hmm. much like Margaret White, who went like town to town praising the word of the Lord. He was killed, tied up to a, a thing, and and they just shot arrows at him until they covered his whole body. Well, and to that, mm-hmm. you can't but help look at Saint Sebastian in that scene mm-hmm. and not recognize the similar attributes in his hair to Margaret White's hair. Mm-hmm. But then let me ask you, Matt. We're jumping a little bit ahead there. The ultimate demise of Margaret White isn't it like a very similar? To the no, it's exactly the yeah, same. Like exactly. I went back and watched it three times. Yeah, the demise of Margaret White mm-hmm. is the exact same placement of the arrows in Saint Sebastian and Carrie's mm-hmm. self-flagellation closet. Let's go back to what you were saying, though. Okay, mm-hmm. so Carrie comes home, yeah, obviously in a bad place because she's had the most traumatic event of her life, which has been filled with only traumatic events. Yep. And what does mom do to her, Jesse? She starts beating the shit out of her. Mm-hmm. Like trying to beat what she's calling the sin and beat Carrie because of that sin. Mm-hmm. What's Carrie supposed... And she's pleading, Mama, you should have told me. Mama, you set me up for this failure. And all Margaret White's response is, is drag her through the hall, yeah. throw her in the closet, and lock her in there for like what is... Four or five hours? Well, yeah. she goes to like work on the... The sewing machine. The sewing machine. <laughs> yeah, exactly. What a bitch. Yeah. But to that, I want to go back to what you said about Piper Laurie. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I've told you this before, but my favorite female role in all of film is Piper Laurie in The Graduate. I'm sorry, in The Graduate. In The Hustler. Yeah. She's terrific as Sarah. And she's she's tragic and she's complex and she's honest and she's heart and soul, and she's way better than Paul Newman deserves for even one quick minute in that <laughs> yeah, film. Yeah. And then she's just kind of gone. Mm-hmm. But the thing about Piper Laurie that's going to show up later in this film is that pantameter and that dialect or accent that she has as she speaks. It's almost breathy, but not like in a cigarette sultry kind of way. Mm-hmm. She has a way of delivering lines that comes from a place that's not from your or I's, mm-hmm. your or mine voice box. Yeah. It's deeper. It's guttural. But wholesome and, and hearty at the same time. And Piper Laurie, I think, is one of Hollywood's most unrefined treasures. I would argue Irene Dunn is second in that category. But Piper Laurie is number one in the most underused, could have been, of all time. She's so good. Would you like a ride? could call you a cab. I'm sure she can walk home. 
And Kara, you're dismissed from gym for a week. Just take study hall instead, okay? We're all sorry about this incident, Cassie. It's Carrie! Now, let's kind of talk a little bit about, you know, the source material. This is Stephen King's first foray into Hollywood. Um, I believe the... Uh, the film rights were sold for $2,500 to him, which that's like... Chicken's feed. That's chicken's feed yeah. for like a book rights. 77, right? Yeah, exactly. And um, it was uh, made for $1.8 million, relatively small budget, gross $33 million. You know, Back then, that's a, pretty, that's a pretty decent hit. I think the movie was very popular when it came out. Oscar nominations for both Piper and Sissy Spacek. Which, again, rare for a, a horror film. We talked about genre pieces when I talked about Silence of the Lambs. Lambs. Like, this is this doesn't happen all the time. No. But let's talk about some of the other actors that are involved in this yeah. project. Because, you know, we got Nancy Ellen, who we talked about last week in RoboCop. She was on her way out of Hollywood at this point, And she did one last audition. It was this film. She like, had had enough. She had had enough. And... You know, her and De Palma eventually uh, married, but she's she's in. Oh, I didn't know that. Is mm-hmm. that right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think they have a kid together too. No kidding. Mm-hmm. But she shows up again in Dress to Kill mm-hmm. and Bowl mm-hmm. Out. Mm-hmm. One of these, I would love to talk about those movies one of these days because they are they are pretty fantastic. Um, but then a young John Travolta, and we're talking like the Welcome Back Cotta days. This was pre Grease, pre Saturday Night Fever, and um, Vinny Barbarino. Vinny Barbarino. We got Amy Irving. Eventually married, and she met Steven Spielberg on the set of this movie. Well, you ha- go ahead and tell that story because it's okay. pretty brilliant. Go ahead and do it. Perfect. So we got to talk about. You got to go back to 1975-76, and there's a new era happening in Hollywood right now, and it's called the New Hollywood Movement, popularized by filmmakers such as Francis Ford Coppola, Brian De Palma, Steven Spielberg, George Lucas, Martin Scorsese, John Milius, and the thing about it. They were all friends. Like these guys would like barbecue together and hang out and show early screenings of their works to each other, and they'd collaborate on screenplays. Like these guys were best friends, and I think they still are to to, to some extent. So, um, you know, this really kind of popularized the types of films coming out too. You know, gone were the days of the musical, the big period epic, and now we're getting films like Mean Streets, The Godfather. Sisters, uh, Sugarland Express, Duel, Jaws. Well, look, right? The Hayes Code ends in what, 67, mm-hmm. 68? Yep. So we yeah. have now, we can push the envelope in what our audience is allowed to see. Yep. And they like it. Yep. And these guys are, they're all fresh young blood coming out of film school, ready to like just take it by its horns. And Scorsese and De Palma specifically are going to take that and run with it. Maybe not Spielberg as much, but. I think you're getting to and Lucas, right? Mm-hmm. I think you're going to get to the casting part here, right? So yeah, let's exactly. do that also. This is awesome, and uh, you can actually uh, look this up on YouTube. You can actually watch the the casting videos of this. George Lucas and uh, De Palma did a co-casting session for their films. Lucas was trying to cast Star Wars. What movie? Never heard of it. <laughs> yeah, never heard of Star Wars. Huh. And uh, De Palma was casting Carrie. So there's actually some cross-pollination of the actors that they screened. So William Catt, who plays Tommy Ross, actually auditioned for Luke Skywalker. Amy Irving did a reading for uh, Princess, Leia. Princess Leia. And vice versa, Cindy Williams for for uh, Sue Snell or Carrie White. Like all these people. And, and uh, uh, Carrie Fisher for the Carrie White part as well. Mark Hamill for Tommy Ross. Yeah. I actually, when I was watching, knowing that, when I was watching Carrie this time, apart from William Catch just like super puffed 
afro. I kind of love it, though. He probably would have been a pretty good Luke Skywalker, actually. Okay, I agree with you. I would argue maybe better. Yeah. Mark Hamill's a terrible actor. <laughs> and go if you don't believe me, go back and watch The New Hope and just cringe through every line that is, like, Groot wooden. Yeah. And... Yeah, I don't want to steal your thunder from what you said earlier about the scene in the prom that's your favorite moment. Yeah. The reason that scene for me is so good <laughs> is because William Cat is so good. Yeah. And I know his hair is a little bit over the top, but yeah. in the 1970s, but it's, it, it's not. It's the Yeah, you're right. It's of the decade. And if there's any crime against this film that it doesn't age well, it's because it's set in that decade. But I can't fault the film for that, though. No, and, and to William Cat, he's going to go from this film, which he said was a success. Yeah, big hit. And roundly not succeed mm-hmm. until he becomes the worst superhero ever. And what was actually, as I remember it, a kid growing up, a kind of a fun show, The Greatest American Hero. Believe it or not. I'm walking on in. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right? So that was a fun show, mm-hmm. and I actually really enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. And then he's going to show up, you said, in House. Yeah, House. This this kind of B-list horror film, this franchise. And yeah, that's 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 the career of William Katz. So, crazy. Yeah, totally crazy how these actors take different paths. But um, let's talk about, you know, some of the other possibilities of Kerry White. This is fascinating to me. Um, Melanie Griffith, really young Melanie Griffith as Carrie. But then this one, that could have been pretty cool. Linda Blair as Carrie White. Kind of a few years removed from The Exorcist, but trying to shake that like stigma that that film had put on her. But all that said, I really do love Sissy Spacek in this role. Oh, yeah. And I'm going to talk about it later in the, the prom scene. Her eyes are so striking. Yeah. The way they, they, they look, and we'll talk about it later, but she's really perfect for this part actually so we pick it up with the end of carrie's re uh praying for forgiveness in her locked in cage closet she comes out her mom basically kind of smiles a little wry smile (laughs) with the knowledge that she's kind of triumphant at this point Mm -hmm. but we're starting to also at this point in the film see that carrie has maybe found a way to revel her mother's or revel her mother's oppressive techniques and that's her telekinesis whether it's the little kid who's talking to trash and she spills him on his bike yep like she's starting to explore with the onset of her menstrual cycle the onset of her telekinesis yes okay so we go forward and then it's moving now the story's moving to sue snell talking to tommy Mm -hmm. and feeling bad about what she's done to Carrie at the behest of Miss Collins in the book that's Miss Desjardins, but mm-hmm. Betty Buckley, mm-hmm. the gym teacher. Okay, so here's the first departure point for me. Mm-hmm. The movie's not the book. Yeah. And the book does a better job of sort of laying the backstory on why the Nancy Allen character is so hateful oh, yeah. to Carrie. Mm-hmm. In this movie, it's essentially, you know, the principal tells Miss Collins, you know, there's not really a whole lot we can do. And Miss Collins decides, after like smacking Nancy Allen, (laughs) putting her up against a locker and like smacking her, that for them to have prom tickets, she's going to have to go through their version or her version of PT or or detention. Yep. And they all seem pretty willing. And frankly, it doesn't look that bad, but it gets to, you know, the inability of Nancy Ellen's character to get over her deep-seated hatred of Carrie mm-hmm. because she doesn't want to do push-ups or burpees or jumping jacks. Yeah. And she basically tells Miss Collins, go fuck yourself. Mm-hmm. 
and decides at that point that she's not going to go to her senior prom. Mm -hmm. Now, in the context of our lives, there's few things that are more overrated for most of us than senior prom. (laughs) Most of the time it doesn't deliver, but this is the beauty of film, right? You can make it as great as you want. And what we're going to get later on with the prom is this magical night. And so King and De Palma deliver on the promises of prom that most of the time we don't actually ever get to see ourselves. Yep. Okay. And she's going to miss out on it. And that river of, of content or like anger flows so strong in her that she's going to make Carrie pay no matter what. Yep. And she gets dumb as rocks, Billy Nolan to get in on the plan in a very hilarious scene of them driving you get everything he's, he's drinking and driving like the cops literally pull up next to him shine a light in his car like that always cracks me up yeah um and he tries to play it off but okay so she's got dumb as rocks billy nolan on board for this plan that she she wants to do something to carry white and so they're on their path to like come up with this prank this ultimate revenge scheme and then at the same time yeah you're right um uh sue's trying to get tommy to you know take carrie and carrie's very hesitant because why would the most popular boy in the entire school, Bates High School, Hitchcock reference has to be, yeah. um, why would he want to take me? They, she thinks she's onto like some type of joke. Um, and then begins this very interesting type of courting of Carrie White that I think initially starts as, yeah, I'll do this for my girlfriend. And I think it grows as we see throughout the, the, the rest of the scenes into something very compassionate. Yeah. And something very beautiful, actually. So, which is juxtaposed with Nancy Allen or, or with Cindy? Is that her? No. Oh, um, gosh. What's her name? Chris. Chris, Chris thank Chris you. Hart- Hart- you guys will notice in these that I do that a lot. <laughs> like, I, I, the actor name and character name. <laughs> but Chris, where Amy Irving as <clears throat> Sue Snell takes Carrie under her wing and sort of mothers her in the way that, you know, Margaret White doesn't. Mm-hmm. Nancy Allen's character, Chris, does just the opposite. It just gets worse. Yep. And it builds mm-hmm. and it builds and it builds. And then you get into, I think, what's a period in this film for like, I don't know, 25, 30 minutes They're or so. About 30 minutes, yeah. Of something that De Palma does brilliantly that I will argue Hollywood does not do brilliantly. And it's the depiction of teens on the screen. Yep. They're usually overwrought and simple and singular as far as purpose but brian de palma does i think very very geniusly well in this moment he does two things he presents a case to the audience that all the girls are essentially teases and all the boys are essentially abusive and that's going to carry through with the exception of three characters well, you can argue Carrie gets pretty abusive later, but mm-hmm. that's the boy role, right? Carrie, Sue, and Tommy. Those three stay out of the realm of what De Palma is creating as this very stark world where they have one goal. And that's shown very, very strongly in Travolta's Billy character mm-hmm. as... I don't care what happens. I'm just going to drink and get laid. Yep. And occasionally I'm going to knock my girlfriend around a little bit. And Chris, Nancy Allen's character, as I can pretty much get this chump to do just about whatever I want, 
if I let him have his way with me enough to keep him sort of interested. Yeah, he's he's dumb as shit. He's dumb as shit, <laughs> and she knows it? Yeah. Okay, and this gets to the bigger theme. This is the whole theme of Carrie for me. Yep. It's the manipulation through physical prowess of the woman over everyone. Over, yeah. Male and female. Right. Margaret to Carrie, mm-hmm. Margaret's sort of the the matriarch in this in this hierarchy of powerful, strong women. Yeah. And what's crazy about that is Carrie starts to become more woman. Margaret White has to become more overbearing in her ability to suppress it. Because when Carrie becomes full woman, Mm -hmm. then she claims her power from her mother and is able to wrest herself free from her clutches and do her own thing. And that's a very common theme in this film, which is not so much so in the book it is, but not to the same level. Margaret White is the oppressive stuff down like anything having to do with femininity or womanhood or sexuality mostly because that's how she's been scorned yep but as carrie moves into that and her telekinesis powers grow she begins to wrestle herself out of that meanwhile every guy in the movie is just an abusive asshole and god made eve from the rib of adam and eve was weak and loosed the raven on the world and the raven was called sin said the raven was called sin. Why you tell me, Mama? Say it. No. A raven was called sin. And the raven was called sin. And first sin was intercourse. First sin was intercourse. I didn't sin, Mama. No. Say it. I didn't sin, Mama. First sin was intercourse. First sin was intercourse. First sin was intercourse. First sin was intercourse. Mama, I was so scared. I thought I was dying. And the girls, they all laughed at me and threw things at me. And he was weak. No, Mama. He was weak. No. He was weak. No. He was weak. Say it. No, Mama. Say it. He was weak. So Carrie eventually kind of gets on board with this prom idea. But she's got to do one thing first. She's got to tell Mother about it. And I think a very brilliant scene in the way it's shot... You know, we get this kind of like full shot of Margaret on one side of the table, Carrie on the other side, and in the back, Da Vinci's last sub. It it covers the entire wall. Which, if that's not nuts, right? (laughs) I I don't know what is. Like, okay, so you have that, and she's telling her, and you know, Margaret instantly says, you know, this is this is sin. This is sin coming to fruition. She does a brilliant thing. She takes her drink, her water. Tea, I believe. Yeah, tea. Throws it at Carrie. Not only splashes her with it, but she knocks out the two candles on the table, mm-hmm. plummeting them in darkness. That's good. Meanwhile, there's this electric, uh, like, lightning storm outside illuminating everything. And every, I don't know if you paid attention, but, like, almost every accent of, like, thunder was, like, rhetoric from Carrie giving it back to Mom. Yeah. Oh, it was yeah. very interesting the way the sound was placed in there. When I was watching it this time. And this is the first time she shows mom what she's capable of. And I think a very brilliant scene that she's going to tell her, you know what, mother? This is a turning point for us and our relationship. And I'm not going to let you do what you do to me anymore. I ain't going into that closet anymore. If you do, I'm going to do this. And she shuts the window on her. And she's like, I'm not the only one who could do it, mama. There's There's other people all like me that can do it. To the blood come the boys like sniffing dogs, slobbering, trying to find where that smell comes from. <laughs> and my hack-ass version of and Piper Laurie. Your Piper Laurie impersonation. Yeah, right? I love it. I love it. So then, yeah, at this point, Carrie shuts the window. Yeah. And Mom's like, oh, snap. Yeah. But here's the thing. Carrie is admitting by using her telekinesis that in her mom's world, 
she's now a witch. Mm-hmm. There's some references sort of to that earlier mm-hmm. as what that means for mother. And the good news for Carrie is she has a defense mechanism that she can use against her mother. Yeah. But the bad news then for Carrie also is mom's got to take it to the next level. Yep. Which she's definitely going to do. Yeah. To overcome that. Yeah. Next think, level for moms though is I got to kill my daughter. You know what I mean? It's like the opposite end of the spectrum. She like goes zero to 60 in like an instant. What, what always strikes me about the scene where you just mentioned where mom throws the tea in Carrie's face. Yeah. Is Carrie is pretty subjective to mom's advances as far as acquiescing to her abusive behavior up to this point. And then mom throws that tea in her and Carrie doesn't miss a beat. She just keeps going with like, mom, I got to go to the prom. This Mm -hmm. is happening. Like she doesn't talk about the tea. She just Mm -hmm. takes it and just rolls on. And you're starting to see Carrie's growth as a woman in the face of opposition woman, her mother. And so what's Margaret White's choice left? Got to take it to the next level. Well, they end up both doing that, right? Exactly. Yeah. Okay, so at this point, we're basically off to... Off to the prom, right? Yeah. Okay. Let's get right to it. Let's do it. So, you know, we, we get there and she's hesitant about going inside and she kind of just wants to kind of sit there for a while because this is like a whole new world for her that's opening up. Yeah. And part of her probably thinks that this is a joke, this is a prank, and the other part of her wants to buy into it. So they get into it and in a very brilliantly shot sequence, a one-shot sequence. Okay, Matt, I, I, I've been wanting to ask you this because... Um, so this prom features like a full band and, you know, they're playing whatever music, like, I don't know what your prom was like, but like my prom was a DJ that played two slow songs to dance to and the rest was bump and grind music. Yeah. And that's, that's what, that's what prom was. This is like a full color display, streamers and tables and very brilliantly lit and this band at play. And in this one shot, we get to see. All of that. Yeah. And then like it kind of all kind of turns around and we get a close up of the band. And um, then we get to kind of kind of see prom at play here. Carrie not wanting to dance. And she has a real pretty nice conversation with Miss Collins about her prom experience and how they essentially spent the whole time talking her and her date. And then they get on the dance floor and this you're right. A very dizzying sequence. I I love it. And I think that's where the transformation changes for both Carrie and Tommy. And they're both kind of really into each other. Okay, right. I'm glad you said that. And probably Tommy a little more than he probably should be. Okay, great. Yes. (laughs) Which gets to, I think, what's going to come for Tommy, I think is really an unfair outcome for him, but also makes the movie work. Yeah. Okay, so the camera is below Tommy and Carrie's waist or waist level. And they're just in a slow dance. And he's kind of trying to teach her just a basic couple's dance to a relatively slow song. Yeah. But there's no way Carrie's been exposed to that because that would resemble something close to sin and sin in mom's book. Mm-hmm. So she she picks it up pretty quick and he tells her, put your hand on my shoulder, put your other hand here. And he goes in to kiss her and she kind of like shies away and puts, his he- puts her head on his shoulder. And then she eventually comes back out and they do have that lip lock. And the whole time as they're spinning in the circle, the camera below them is spinning in a circle and De Palma is masterfully creating a dizzying effect Mm -hmm. that Carrie is feeling through the viewers looking at Carrie in that scene. Yeah. I think that's masterfully done. And by the time that scene's done for, (laughs) for everybody that's ever been in one of those found footage films that said, I left the movie and I was so dizzy. Yeah. Then this is that to the 10th degree. Yeah. And I want to say this and I don't want to sound cheesy or just like over, overwrought with like thematic. I think that's a very beautiful scene. 
I don't disagree with you. Between the two of them. Between the, the, the colors and, and the two of them, like, interlocked, like... Very beautiful scene insofar as, look, it's still the gym, and it's a whole lot of glitter and streamers. Yeah. So you look at that, and you're like, man, it's kind of all of the overwrought cheesiness that is prom and the impossibility of that event ever living up to what you've built it in your mind to be. Yeah. But for Carrie, it's delivered in spades, number one, mm-hmm. because Tommy's fantastic to her Mm -hmm. like treats her like an absolute princess and secondly she's finally getting to explore like what it might what it might be to be out of the oppressive let's read leviticus and then we'll follow with deuteronomy because we got a few hours to kill (laughs) dear god right (laughs) no pun intended (laughs) (laughs) exactly that her mother has subjugated her to like the flagellation of religion And and she's like oh my god his hand, his body's pressed against me, and you know what? But maybe feeling love too. She's all about it. exactly. Yeah. She's she's in the moment and mm-hmm. completely there. And look, honestly, Sissy Spacek is terrific at this moment, mm-hmm. and so is William Cat. Yeah. Now let's contrast that with what else is going on in this scene, which yeah. is uh, Chris and Billy who have set up this. They've slaughtered a pig in the meantime, and they've set up a, a bucket of blood above the the stage. And the whole ploy is to rig the king and queen ceremony so that. Tommy and Carrie win outright. Right, so they're going to vote for who's going to be home or prom king and queen. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They've already doctored the ballots so that they're going to win. And then Chris and Billy can take their Billy mostly so he can get Chris in bed because she'll repay him for his favors. And Chris because she hates Carrie. And he's just drinking underneath that stage. Just (laughs) drinking, drinking, drinking. But let me tell you about another really brilliant scene that, like, you know, I've seen this movie a few times. And I think the first time I saw it was actually like on Xfinity On Demand when I was like yeah. 19. Okay. Um, I noticed that when they were filling out their ballots, you know, there was a lot of great religious elements at play there where, you know, Tommy's like the hell with fa- fa- false modesty. Let's vote yeah. for ourselves. Right. And so, and then Carrie's like last line there is like, yeah, the hell with it. Literally. I think like, Tommy says actually to the devil yeah no yeah you're right you're right the devil and then she's like yeah the devil with it which is literally him talking about carrie and her mother's Mm -hmm. definition of carrie at that point so now you got you got heaven and hell like at play right now right so they win Mm -hmm. unbeknownst to you know everyone else um and because chris has rigged it and another brilliant like cinematographer like eloquently shot sequence that like literally shows the rope leading up to the bucket Pulling up into the rafters, showing the bucket, and then the winners of King, uh, Tommy Ross and Carol, and then showing, and then zooming in on them from the bucket. Yeah. And then as they walk to the stage, she's bathed in like this white, like vibrant, again, that dreamlike quality, this white light, this, I'm going to, I don't want to be cheesy again, this angel walking up to the stage. Right. And as we get to the stage and... Well, don't, you're, it's not cheesy, Jesse, because that's what he's trying to do. Yeah. And she actually is angelic at this point. Yeah. she look, Car- Sissy Spacek is really, really attractive in this moment. And this is the most heartbreaking part for me. And I think this is why I love this scene so much is that as they're walking up and people are applauding her, the teachers, the faculty, the rest of the students, other than um, um, Chris and then, and then uh, PJ Souls from Halloween yeah. as Norma with the baseball cap. That's just, it's, I love that. Mm-hmm. Um, who have rigged this whole thing. I think they really do care about Carrie at this point. I think they're in, I think they, 
Yeah, no, they, you're right. They're they're loving it, and, and like this is for her. No, the underdog has climbed the mountain. This exactly. is this great moment of everything promised supposed to be, and it's so dreamlike for everyone. Yeah, and Sue shows up because she wants to kind of see what's happening, and and she's digging it too. And then we get the moment. We get she she finds the rope and sees like something's about to mm-hmm. come across, and then Miss Collins sees it, removes Sue. Closes, literally closes the doors. And at that moment, you know, Chris pulls, and I love that close up of her lips as she like kind of like licks her lips in between. And then the blood just, oh, we go from angelic to devilish, literally in in an instant. And, you know, we get that kaleidoscoping effect of, you know, they're all going to laugh at you and everyone laughing at her now. The other reason, the second reason I love this scene is the revenge element. I mean, we talked about last week in RoboCop about how satisfying it was to see Murphy, RoboCop, kill the dregs of Detroit. Yeah. And for how they brutally murdered him. Same thing here. I mean, we literally get... And something that Brian De Palma has done in a few of his films, split screen. Mm-hmm. Now, what, what other director is doing split screen? Like, literally no one else. Right. Um... Showing this split screen sequence of her closing the doors and you just seeing the eye movement. And then like it's full on her. And man, does does she let him have it or does she let him have it? Yeah, so at this point Carrie's drenched in blood and her pretty gown that she built mm-hmm. is ruined. And her hair is ruined. And her her date has been knocked on the head with is the he, empty is he, pail. Is he dead? No, he's unconscious. Okay, I was going to say. And I think that's what kind of is the final moment for her. At this point... I think she's into Tommy as much as he is her. And we're probably bordering on a conversation if Tommy should survive this night, which he's not going to. Yeah. Where he's going to go to Sue and be like, look, i got to tell you. I'm into Carrie now. I think I'm into Carrie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> which in the book, at this point, Sue's almost pregnant. Like there's a possibility that Sue's pregnant yeah, yeah. by Tommy. The whole in the pregnancy storyline. Yeah. Okay. Yep. So, but that's the book, not the movie. So I think that's what sends her over the edge. And you get that very rigid almost scarecrow like demeanor that SpaceX takes on where she kind of protrudes her neck and sticks her head out and drops her shoulders and she gets that that awkward movement and we get a bunch of instances of doors being closed and the fire hose starting to douse <coughs> the kids in the auditorium literally gonna like electrocute everybody or like light them on fire and do the amount of water that is then dispersed into the gym and the electricity mostly from the band mm-hmm. that i think is insinu- like is basically set into motion by the stupid english teacher as he grabs <laughs> the oh, mic. And i love that image too of him like electrocuting on that like wall of lights and so he grabs the mic to tell the kids like everybody calm down or whatever yes. and like because there's so much water and electricity he shocks himself on the mic he then catches on fire and it ignites the and the whole thing you just <laughs> see carrie and like the the shadowy figure amongst the amongst the oh, that's a great shot that's brilliant I love it that's so, not, I love this scene I love this scene it, what's also I think really works in this as Carrie has experienced her first real moments as woman like opposite the male and what all that means between males and females her telekinesis also experiences the growth that is fully developed mm-hmm. she locks all these kids in the gym. Doors are barricaded, and one by one, they start going down. Some burning. Miss Collins, the gym teacher, is smashed underneath, like what's a, like a hanging 
partition that smashes her against the wall when she's actually trying to help Carrie. Yeah. And I, I think I think she survives in the book. If she I'm, does. Uh, yeah. She does. So this is equally heartbreaking. This kind of maternal figure that's taken Carrie under her wing. Like, she showed Carrie inner beauty. Like, when she told Carrie, Tommy wants to take me to the prom. I don't know what to do. Right. She, Go look in the mirror, Carrie. You're beautiful. We see a group of, like, five guys that have Tommy sort of carry, like, fireman carrying him out. Because I guess at this point he's unconscious. They're... In split screen with Chris and Billy watching from outside the massacre. Right. They get out just before Carrie locks down all the doors. And so they're watching through the windows. And so we're getting, like you said, this split screen effect. And it's all of the people at Bates High about to meet their demise, which I think in the book is something like 68 and 440 in total. Yeah. Book's different because Carrie's going to set the whole town on fire. But um, these people all bite the dust. Mm -hmm. And Carrie leaves through a door that she's able to open as the entire gym is essentially incinerated in a hell-like fury that's... You pushed me one too, like you pushed me too far once too often, mm-hmm. and that's it. I don't know. And if, they all go down. I don't know if you feel the same way, but I feel like you know we've talked about a lot of iconic sequences in, in these episodes and this prom scene. I feel like you got to almost mention this sequence in the conversation with the shower scene and the chestburster scene. Oh sure. Like I think it like it like you say prom scene. From Carrie, I'm like, I think people, like, whether they've seen the movie or not, I think they, they know, like, what that involves. She's doused in blood. Her eyes are beating through. Mm-hmm. It's almost like, not to be offensive here, but it's almost like blackface but red face. Mm-hmm. And <sighs> I'll tell you something brilliant that I found out. So talk about a trooper. It took him three days to film, I think, the whole prom sequence. Just the blood yeah. sequences. yeah. Sissy Spacek didn't want to like, she wanted to keep continuity with how it looked. So she would go to bed every night with the blood on her. No joke. Wake up and wow. kind of go through it again. Yeah, exactly. That's crazy. Yeah, that's that's pretty awesome. So yes. So we go right from this to you know she, uh, uh, Chris and Billy are trying to run her off the road. She flips the car, blows them up, and then it's to home to bathe herself from this, the 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 this blood this you know whatever you want to call it that and and something that i i noticed once in a while um as she's going into the bathroom there's mother in the corner kind of like oh like creepy like what creepily standing there backlit from behind where piper laurie's breasts are exposed through her nightgown yeah and it's the embodiment of piper laurie's sexuality through repression Mm -hmm. that brian de palma is also delivering brilliantly so let's back one more step and we forgot about the scene too about like in the middle of the prom scene they cut to her at home and she's cutting vegetables oh yeah and she's just a carrot she's just cutting them but like with like no somatic like like and then she's just cutting board at the end of it like you she you you see at this point that she's snapped she's gone right yeah she's a she's gone Here's the other thing, too, that I always sort of struggle with in this film. And maybe it works. I mean, the demise works, but I don't know if the motivation works. Chris and Billy are going to run Carrie over. Yeah. Jesse, how does it go from, let's dump some pig's blood on her and humiliate her, to she just set the whole gym on fire and we watched it, to let's run her over. Again, Billy's foolishly drinking in the car, like... So I love that scene too because Carrie senses the car and she's covered in blood with her hands, like her arms at her side and her her hands 
awkwardly and <clears throat> taut at her at her elbows. And the car approaches them from behind, and she looks over her shoulder and flips the car, boom, 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 tumbles, mm-hmm. and then sends both of them to hell yep. in a fiery car explosion. And the fatality rate is just mounting by the moment. Mm-hmm. But Carrie's got one thing left to do, and that's go home and get right. Yep. Because she's realized, like, mom warned her, they're all going to laugh at you. I think she tries to make solace with mother. So saying, she realizes mom was right. Yep. They all did laugh at me because when Carrie gets the blood dumped on her, her version of that in her mind is all of the people laughing, but mostly if they're laughing, they're laughing at the bucket hitting Tommy's head. Yeah. So then mom was right. And so Carrie makes all those people pay and then she's going to go home and it's atone for her sins mm-hmm. and repent with her mother. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, but mother lets her have it. The same knife that she was cutting the vegetables yeah. with. Yeah. Stabs her. And then starts making the cross with the knife. Yeah, she's nuts. As she's, she's ready to finish Carrie off. Yeah. But then so, Car- yeah. Go stab ahead. in the back, right? Carrie's like hugging mom. Mom picks up the knife. This is after Carrie's taking a quick bath to sort of wash all the blood off of her. Stabbed in the back. In the of course in the back. Mm-hmm. Like she Margaret White would have it no other way than in the back. Yep. <clears throat> Carrie tumbles down the steps. And Margaret White in this semi-trance-like state, with her hair flying everywhere, is following Carrie down the steps, making the sign of the cross with the knife, ready to just finish her off. And then I'll let you go ahead and give go ahead. And yeah, so, she, so Carrie lets full telekinesis take shape at this point, gives her the full St. Sebastian at this All the sharp implements in the kitchen go right into Margaret White. And again, you take that figure that was in the closet... Saint mask, Sebastian. Mask it up with Margaret White, and it's identical. Yep. Literally identical. To the hair. Yep. So then at this point, you know, Carrie's dying out, and then then the house crumbles in on itself at this so, point. What I find interesting in that though, and it does sort of give me pause as far as what the purpose would be going forward. Mm-hmm. Margaret White is essentially impaled or crucified in the doorway of the kitchen with a knife in each palm, which clearly is a reference to Christ. Mm-hmm. And then a several, you know, sharp elements through her abdomen. Carrie kind of rests her free from those impaled elements. And then through telekinesis brings the house down on top of them. But where does she seek refuge? In the closet. Mm-hmm. In the closet <clears throat> that mom put her in for years. Yeah. I would venture at this point, mm-hmm. Margaret White's probably not dead yet. I mean, she's going to. Yeah. She's going to bleed out. But yeah. I don't know if any of those stabs in her abdomen were the kill shot, essentially. Yeah. Carrie pulls her off, gets her free from all the things that have impaled her, and they run into the closet and close the door just as the house comes down on them. I think it's a very prophetic ending to Carrie. Mm-hmm. Because that's where all of the things that mom had done to her yeah. had sort of been physically enforced yeah. in the closet, go mm-hmm. repent. But we still have the icing, uh, the, 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 the cherry on top to, to end the movie, which is this dreamlike state of sue snell going to visit the grave of carrie white which is this a like demolished plot and a scene that was actually filmed backwards to make it look even more unnatural than it already looks and i gotta tell you man you know really yeah exactly in an era of horror where you know the movie most movies you know they would end and you'd be okay you'd be sitting back like the film's reached its, its its pinnacle we got to talk about the last second jump scare. This has got to be one of the first films that really incorporated this element. As she lays the flowers down, 
up comes Carrie's hands to to grab to to grab her hand as she's laying the flowers down. I think a pretty a pretty good jump scare. Maybe back in 1976, I know this scared a lot of people, but I don't think this had really ever been tried much before uh, prior to that. Well, to the effectiveness of that scene, like I can tell you, the first time I saw this movie with a group of people was a film class that I took in college. Mm-hmm. And the hand up through the grave that grabs Sue Snell's arm as she lays down the flowers at Carrie White's grave caused a class of, what, 19 to 25-year-olds all to jump. I sat yeah. in the back and... And I remember my teacher was saying, wait till the end of this film and watch what they all do. And they all, we all did jump. Yeah, um, yeah. so it's an effective jump scare. And I think that's pretty common in horror film today. Mm-hmm. But back then, I think horror was different. Like, yeah, well, take yeah. The Exorcist. Yeah. That's not jump scares. Yeah. The movie it's ends this... and they, they go off on their way to wherever they're leaving the house from Georgetown and the movie's over. And here you think the movie's over too, but then you get this last... I'm trying, just trying to think like Black Christmas, The Exorcist, Texas Chainsaw. Like, there's not a movie that did this prior to that. Like, so let's go back to one other thing real quick, and that's the the moment where Carrie and Mama basically try to make up before Carrie finishes off Mother, Mm -hmm. and Piper Laurie basically expresses to Carrie why she's in the state that she's in, Mm -hmm. and that's why she's been. So protective over Carrie's womanhood. We come to find out that dad didn't die. That dad got upset with mother. Of course he did. She's crazy. Mm -hmm. And left with another woman. And we get this really remarkable two minutes from Piper Laurie where she's on her knees. Carrie White's standing and Margaret White's on her knees. And she says things like, you know... um, I should have killed myself after the first time he put it in me. Mm-hmm. But we were married and sin never dies. And then we get the whole story of the night that Carrie was conceived. And, um, you know, like the stink of the filthy roadhouse whiskey on his breath. And all that filthy fucking and I liked it. And we get Margaret White's admission that maybe this whole purpose for keeping Carrie repressed the way that she's tried to is because she's scorned Mm -hmm. he left her yeah which who could blame him but insofar as leaving him he left her with this woman and their very meager means i imagine margaret white probably works at the church Mm -hmm. of providing for them and so what margaret white's trying to do i think is in a weird backwards ignorant way protect carrie from what she's gone through and now it's gone so far with the telekinesis that the only way that Margaret can really do that is confess her sins, which she just did in the way I told you, and then kill her, which is stab her. Mm-hmm. And I think that moment in, in the movie is so much better than it is in the book. In the book, essentially, Carrie crushes her heart, crushes mm-hmm. her mother's heart. Yeah. Um, but in the movie, you get the whole, oh, wow, this was really about like nothing more than a scorned woman. Yeah. And I think it grounds Piper, Laurie, or Carrie, or Margaret White, mm-hmm. and it almost makes her purpose that much more insignificant and that much more tragic. Yeah, yeah. I want to ask you one more thing, and then we'll get into the ratings. Okay. Um, in the book, the book's very structured a little differently, and I mean, like, there's a whole interview element to it. Yeah. Backstory portions, and they're interviewing Sue. A book and, written by Sue Snell. Exactly. And newspaper. And I call stuff. it the true detective element. Like, if you've yeah. seen the show True Detective, the first season, 
they kind of structured the show like that. Sure. Do you like that element better? Do you feel like it works better structuredly the way De Palma did it? I think I like it better insofar as launching King's career. Yeah. Because I think that was an interesting take to sort of give a look into what was about to happen and then go into a narrative that describes it. But having watched the movie and then knowing what the end story is, I found it to be really distracting in the story. Mm -hmm. Um, So I guess my answer is for his career, yes. Yeah. For my enjoyment of story, no. No, okay. But it was anticlimactic because I already knew where it was going. And that's the problem with seeing the movie and the reading the book. It's masterfully written. Mm -hmm. And you can see even, like this is Stephen King's first first novel. Mm -hmm. He was a teacher, an English teacher in Maine. And you can see where he's coming from in the way that, you know, sex sort of is going to be a prominent theme in a lot of things that King's right. King writes. Um, I'll be honest with you going through it this time. As I got through it, I after about half the book. I started skipping a lot of that. I am Sue Snell narrative mm-hmm. or the newspaper narrative and just getting to the, the narrative, the actual yeah. in time narrative itself. Yeah. I know. Is that an answer to your question? Yeah. What do you think? I like the whole, like, I like the structure of the interview, but I think, you know, for, you know, the film, I think, I think it's paced very effectively. It's, yeah. it's an hour and 38 minute movie. It's not very long. Yeah, um, the book's like 190 pages. Yeah. They're both very short. Um, yeah. To, to each their own. I think, you know, book wise, it adds another element to presentation, but film wise, I think it works very well. Actually. Agreed. Agreed. Um, you know, talk about this was his first kind of four way into popular culture. We talked about Salem's Lot last week. Yeah, it's like going from here to there. Like, like he totally like, like no hold stops on that one. Right. So, Matt, what would you rate grade Carrie? Oh man, I've gone back and forth on this so much, and I, I'll be honest. I watched the movie on Monday night, and then I wasn't thrilled because if. Again, the movie is the movie. The movie is not the book. Yeah. And I was really trying to dig through like a systematic and common theme that De Palma as King tried to purvey. And I I wish I could tell you that all women are teases and all men are abusive played out. It doesn't. Um, I wish I could tell you that it was either sex or violence or religion. And all of those are sort of played out in a B minus way for me. Mm -hmm. Um, I know it's made for a shoestring budget. I know it's a lot of young people just starting in their career. So we have to sort of grant them the maturity of filmmaking. Man. And I know also that this is a staple in the horror genre. Mm -hmm. But part of being a staple is aging well. Like one of your favorite movies is Silence of the Lambs. Mm -hmm. You can watch that today and it still holds the way that it did when you saw it the first time. Yeah, Jesse... As much as I've sung its praises and I like the story, the mm-hmm. delivery, and as much as I love De Palma at times, yeah, although yeah. he wrecked my favorite genre of film, <laughs> this movie is barely call for me. Mm-hmm. I watched it again. I don't need to see this movie for another 15 years. And that's saying <laughs> it has one of my favorite actresses in it, Piper Laurie. Yeah. It is, as much as you and I have gone into and beat this up and talked about this, it is so underplayed in the parts that it shouldn't be underplayed that it really ends up being a disappointment for me. It has its place in the annals of horror. Yeah. It's a great performance by Laurie. 
and and spacek there's some monumental moments in the the pig's blood yeah, the yeah. crucifixion of mom in the doorway but outside of that i don't know dude like it's like it's not well but if well is like sky vodka yeah this isn't quite kettle one okay <laughs> it's barely called sure for me. sure sure and i know people are like how did he get to that rating after what he just said it's my problem with a lot of film. Okay, just generally speaking. Sure. Yeah. Execution. Yep. You can have a great idea. It's got to be executed, <clears throat> and there's no small glory and talent to do that as yeah. such. I think more so where my rating is going to come from is I see the importance of this place in film history with this film, not only for Brian De Palma, but for Stephen King. If I, yeah. if this movie's a bomb, does King have the same type of career that he has? Like, Yeah, it's fair. That, that, that is something to consider. Yeah. Because it was so popular, I think it helped propel his name, his image, his trademark into the 80s. Sure. And uh, same with the Palma. You know, if, if this is a bomb for De Palma, do we get films such as Dress to Killer Blood? And I, I love both of those movies. Mm-hmm, I do too. I think, you know, the performances, you know, said to itself and the, 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 the promising that we've talked about to, to, to exhaustion... I, I want to say, you know, th- this does hold a, an important place in, in film history, and I'm, I'm kind of leering towards a single barrel minus for this one for myself. This was kind of my gateway to King. I had never read a King book prior to, to this. I watched this movie, I think I was like 19, actually. And I was like, oh, like and it like, I must have saw it at the right time, but it just like spoke to me. And I think it was that prom scene. And I saw the cinematography and the use of color and the acting, and it like, it really just like, honed in on me that I wanted to seek out the rest of his books. So I read this one. I read Salem's Lot. I read The Shining, Pet Cemetery, Dolores Clay. And I just kept going. So this was my gateway to King. So it holds a little special place for that. But it's undeniable the place that this this film holds in, in horror history. So because of that, I got to go with the rating of Single Barrel Minus. Um, I think if you tier... And we've talked about tiering filmmakers, filmographies. Like we got a Hitchcock tier... Yeah. Like his upper tier, his four-star tier, and then like everything else. Right, <laughs> right. I think for King, like film adaptation-wise, like I think this one's up there. Like I think like Shawshank and like The Shining and like a few others would be in the top tier. I think this is like in the four-star tier for King's adaptations. Not necessarily the books, but the adaptations. Um, What's tricky about this, <clears throat> I, I agree with your single barrel. And as we've moved through, I think this is what, podcast 11 now or something? No, number 11. Okay. So, no, 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 number 10. Okay, so number 10. As we move through this, for me, single barrel is iconic insofar as there's no blend. It was a bit of a, a genre defining movie. Yeah. I think you can have single barrel, but single barrel doesn't necessarily mean that it's um, Pappy Van Winkle. Yeah. It can still be shitty single barrel. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, and, there's and, no blend to it. Like, to me, call yeah. is kind yeah. of admit. And and the point of being in here is, I agree with your single barrel blend. Mm-hmm. I, as we've moved through this, I don't know if single barrel necessarily means to me outstanding film. Yeah, no, yeah, it's not. I wouldn't call. I wouldn't put it in the same conversation no, no. as like Godfather one and two. So I, I think I'm. I, I might maybe be a little bit more inclined <clears throat> to sort of agree. Like, is there such thing as? Call minus single barrel. We could do whatever we want. This so, is this is our own show. We do what we want. 
I think I may amend that a little bit because it is I it is an iconic film. Yeah. And it it is a start of two big names. Well, more than two big names. I think SpaceX had done maybe done Badlands before this. Yeah. Michael Douglas, is that right? Yeah, but her Travolta, like Right. They would explode. Nancy Allen. Yep. Yep. And then you said, you know, De Palma and King. Mm-hmm. So by that definition, it's clearly a landmark moment. And 1.8 generates 33 in 1977. That's a huge win. Yeah. But let me say this too. Yeah. Also, what follows this film, the Rage 2, uh, Rage carried uh, to. Have you ever seen that? No. That movie sucks ass. I bet. Um, and then you got the TV remake. Which followed the book more because that actually had the interview elements in it. Okay. Get the hell out of here. That That's like three hours. No, like it doesn't hold the candle to this movie. And then we're not even talking about the remake with Chloe Grace Moretz and Julianne Moore. Yeah. Piper Laurie. You can't. It's not the same thing. Right. Not at all. So when you talk about Carrie, when you talk about its adaptation to screen, I think this is the defining moment for the story. Like it has, sure. It has, sure. It has to be. And I will also say it's a really good read. Mm-hmm. If you haven't seen the film, I would actually recommend reading the book first. Most people say that about the book. Yeah. And then see the film. Yeah. Um, you can recognize the brilliance of King right out of the right out of the gate. Mm-hmm. First novel, like the guy's killing it right away. Yeah. But again, the movie is not the book. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, it's, it's a tough ranking for me. Yeah. So I, I don't know. You guys take away from that what you want. Matt, Somewhere between call and single barrel call. Matt's conflicted Minus. over here. If you could, if you could see his face, like he doesn't, he's very confused right now. I am. I'm struggling. Yeah. I actually finished this film and I told my wife. I said, "Carrie's a weird film," and she's like, "I know it is." And I said, "What do you mean by that?" She's like, "I just think Piper Laurie and Sissy Spacek are so ugly." And like, okay, okay. That's that doesn't play that doesn't play for me the same way, but man, I don't know. Can I, I just say this right no, now? Yeah. Like I love talking about Stephen King. Yeah, his films, his books. Like this is going to be a fun cast. Sure, this is going to be a blast. I agree. So before we head out into next week, um, we'll head out with the nightcap. Pour ourselves one more. Okay. Um, you know, just kind of looking at like. I posted a BuzzFeed article on our Facebook page about the rankings of all of Stephen King's adaptations. I think there was 55 or 56. Yeah. That's a lot. It is. So looking at that, they're not all winners. No. That's for sure. What is the worst Stephen King adaptation? The Tommyknockers. I'm not even going to give it any more words. That's terrible. Like, Dead Zone and Firestarter are also in discussion. There you go. That's it. I, I'm not even. That's it. It's terrible. Okay. Um, I don't understand why for him, as a prolific a writer as he was, and you could argue that the greatest American writer ever. I know people will no, say, "Oh, well, he's a horror writer." But what? I don't know. I, I don't care about that. Like I could absolutely make that argument too. He writes like no one else I've ever read. And if you look at the amount of people that are familiar with his stuff, okay, we could also like. I particularly love the first four books in the Dark Tower series. Mm-hmm. The original, like the Dark Tower, Ron Howard film that they just did, whatever, is shit. Matthew McConaughey, Adris Elba, that's terrible. Um, yeah. Okay. Tommy Knockers. That's enough. Okay. Um, no, I'm, I'm with you. Like, you know, Stephen King has... You could make that argument. He's he's a brilliant writer. Like I read Dolores Claiborne, 
and no joke, the film has no chapter breaks. It's just uh, interview prose from page one to like 353. And it took me forever to get behind that because it's just a conversation. And you mm-hmm. have to form the story like in your head. Mm. That book is brilliant. Okay. Absolutely brilliant. My pick, I thought about The Dark Tower. Because I think, I like Idris Elba as the gunslinger. But yeah. Matthew McConaughey has no business being in that movie. No. And talk about the road to that movie. Ron Howard, Ron, Ron Howard is supposed to make that movie, and then it fell to whatever. Like, that movie sucks. So it's going to be like an adaptation in a oh, series of no. the books, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. That movie sucks that ass. Thing. They're going to try and do it on Amazon. Let's hope it's a winner. I don't know. Um, I had to pick. It's the only film Stephen King ever attempted to direct. Oh, I know. Mm-hmm. It's Maximum Overdrive. It's terrible. And he literally said... King has gone on record saying this was the worst adaptation of his work. And he directed it. And literally he said like it was like him filming and like cocaine like made the movie as well. He was so drugged out and like drinking so heavily. That film's ridiculous. Terrible. Between, between the ACDC score, Emilio Estevez and the Green Goblin like like semi-truck. Like it has a cult status, but like I'm not on board with that cult status. Like that that's kinda of, that's a bad movie. And the short story is trucks. And it's a story about these these sentient objects. Oh my god, we're getting into territory you hate. Sentient objects that like come to life and they're trying to take over the world, like Yeah, get out of, get out of here with that. That's a bad movie and because he made it and it's like that's that 80s period where he was like drinking so heavily and doing so many drugs that like you can see it in his work too. Mm-hmm. I'm reading Kuja right now and you could totally tell. Mm. You can totally tell. Mm. He's writing perspectives of the work from the, the dog's perspective like. Yes, ridiculous. Yeah, exactly. So, all right. So, can you say this? Uh, you know, Maybe you agree with me on this. Go ahead. Stephen King's non-horror stuff is better than his horror stuff. Do we agree with that? I know you have The Shining, but I'll show you The Shining and give you, raise you with Shawshank, yeah. Stand By Me, yeah. The Green Mile. Mm-hmm. Come on. I don't know. I, I You know I, I'm a Carpenter guy. Do I, I love a Christine. And I, I, I don't do you know. love Christine, really? I, I do. I really do. Wow. We, we should talk about that movie one of these days. I don't know. I think Stephen King works better in, in, in horror but you're right. He does have this side element of like the Shawshank, Green Mile, and, and films like that. Stand by They're me. a little more eloquent. Yeah. Interesting. So Matt, let's let the listeners know what, what's coming next week. Okay, so flight two or entry two, not flight two, entry two in the Stephen King cast, the King's Landing cast, mm-hmm. will be, I think, one of his greater successes. That's a novella based in. Um, was it the Tommy? No, what is it? Uh, um, I haven't read it, so I don't know. It? <laughs> Different seasons? No, that's the one with um, Shawshank. Dreamscapes and I can't even remember what the name of that book is. It's anyway, the, it's, it's a novella. It's The Mist. Yep. So we'll hit The Mist next week, and I can't wait because I have a lot to say about this film. Where are you at on this film? Where I am at on this film was like, I'm lucky that I'm with you that I got to see it in the theater. Yes, for sure. Because let's talk about that no one went to see in this movie in the theater. Yep. And screw all of you that didn't go exactly. see it. Exactly. <laughs> yep. Um, yeah, I'm anxious to revisit this entry. And for those of you who have seen it, you know what that movie has. For those of you that haven't seen it, find it in the next week. Because that movie has one of the most twisted twist mm-hmm. endings of all time. 
and it either makes you love the movie or hate the movie but i, I yeah i'm excited to talk about it too yes i can't wait it's gonna be great and um yeah to that excellent so raise one up matt yep cheers cheers to the listeners we hope you you're liking what you're hearing and we got to be going because we got to go lay some flowers at Carrie White's grave because she's burning in hell right now. And we got to go pay our respects. Have a good week, everybody. We'll see you in the dark. Thank you for listening to Rye Smile Films. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram to stay in the know for future episodes. And be sure to subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, Google Play Music, and leave us an email at rysmileproductions at gmail.com. Carrie is property of United Artists and MGM Pictures, and no copyright infringement is intended. Until next time, cheers. One, two, one, two, one, two. The period's not up, Harginson. It is from me. Keep running. Well, there are 10 minutes left. Stick him up your <gasps> You can't! You can't finish, you bitch! What the world? I'm gonna knock you down, do you understand me? She can't get away with this if we all stick together, Norma! Helen! Sue! Shut up, Chris. Just shut up.